Just a couple of weeks ago, in late July, something pretty striking happened in the United States. Former Trump advisor Tom Barrick was arrested on accusations that he secretly worked to influence the Trump administration on behalf of the United Arab Emirates. Thomas Barrick, a close friend and advisor to former U.S. President Donald Trump, was arrested and indicted on federal charges. Barrick, who was Trump's inaugural committee chair, faces charges of illegally lobbying. Barrick, along with both a former employee of his and an Emirati citizen, are accused of giving the United Arab Emirates illegal influence over the United States. What the UAE was able to do was really garner influence over just about every issue that they wanted. But what did the UAE want? What did they get? And what is the United States doing to keep this from happening again? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today, we're talking with Ben Freeman, who's written a book, reports, articles, all about foreign influence on the U.S. I'm the director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy. So you are the perfect person to talk to. Just a couple of weeks ago, Thomas Barrick was arrested and charged with acting as a foreign agent for the United Arab Emirates. What is the U.S. Department of Justice saying Barrick did and what did he do that was wrong? What the indictment alleges is that Barrick and some of his co-defendants, they were effectively working on behalf of the United Arab Emirates. The indictment makes clear that the folks that they were working with are at the very highest levels of the Emirati government, all the way up to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, and also including the UAE's ambassador to the U.S. And what they were trying to do was secretly use Barrick and his co-defendants to influence the Trump White House and even Donald Trump himself. Tom Barrick, he's a billionaire, investor, highly successful, but he also has a decades-old relationship with President Donald Trump. A decades-old relationship with Donald Trump. Yeah. We found this tape of Barrick from a 2016 Bloomberg interview talking about that relationship. I really consider him a really good friend, a person I know in a way that most people don't. Tom Barrick had the ear of President Donald Trump. He was serving as an agent of the United Arab Emirates. Why is this case so serious versus, say, other lobbying efforts, France's wine lobby or lobbies for interests in South Korea? Yeah, it's a great question. He was doing this without alerting the Department of Justice to the fact that he was doing work on the UAE's behalf. Frankly, the the foreign influence industry, which I study, a majority of countries in the world have lobbyists and PR folks working on their payroll right now in in the U.S. But by and large, they're they're doing it legally. Those are the folks that, that are registered. So what really jumps out about this, the illegality of it, this was covert. It was designed to be this back channel of influence. And then they were able to influence the president of the United States. So to me... 
This was one of the most effective covert influence operations that we've seen in quite some time. So I want to rewind in history just a little bit here. Many of us remember those first days of the Trump administration, his first foreign visit to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia has been very enthusiastic about Donald Trump's arrival. Um, there was this picture and Riyadh of considered Trump Trump's predecessor grabbing Obama this orb. Trump, King Salman and the Egyptian president holding a glowing globe at the opening of a new center for combating extremist ideology. No one from the UAE is in this picture that I'm talking about, but now we have evidence from this indictment that a trip preceding that trip, a trip by UAE officials to the White House one week before that picture was taken, may have come about because of this relationship between Thomas Barrick and the UAE. Malika, that's absolutely right. The real interesting thing about the orb photo, which I think is a lot of folks' favorite creepy president photo, uh, perhaps of all time. The glowing orb. Donald Trump touches glowing orb by laying hands upon this glowing orb. And I, I guess there's a lot of weird photos of presidents over time, but the seeds for that photo are realistically planted months in advance, perhaps even a year in advance, when Tom Barrack first started whispering in Trump's ear on the UAE's behalf. They were forging this very strong bond with President Trump, getting him to see the Emirati side and to see the side of their close allies in Saudi Arabia. What Barrick is able to orchestrate in those first months are multiple interactions between UAE officials and officials in the Trump administration, including Donald Trump himself. Did the UAE just get lucky with having someone placed in the Trump campaign? That's a great question, Malika. And I think the media has sort of lost focus on part of this because from the UAE's point of view, Barrick was just one option that they had. And Trump was just one option that they had. They weren't putting all their eggs in one basket. They were also running a sort of separate influence operation, trying to get closer to the Clinton campaign. They were making campaign donations to the presidential campaign. They were even successful as part of this little influence operation in getting a fundraising dinner with an appearance by Hillary Clinton's husband, former President Bill Clinton. Wow. And so you had these sort of like two-track approach. What ultimately happens, of course, is Donald Trump wins the election. So then they wholeheartedly focused both this barrack operation and this other operation run by a couple folks named George Nader, who was, who was an advisor to the UAE, uh, and Elliot Broidy, who was a big Trump fundraiser. So they make what we now know is an illegal $1 million contribution to Donald Trump's inauguration fund. By the way, that inauguration, too, is organized by, you guessed it, Tom Barrick. Here Barrick is on Bloomberg again. I look at from, from my simple beginnings, have the honor of running an inauguration, to be up close and personal on some issues that affect the world order. I paid a personal price for it. So let's walk back through the four years of the Trump administration. How many things happened as a result of this influence from the UAE? How much time do we have? 
we know from the Barrick indictment that they had what they literally called a wish list under a Trump administration. The U.S. supporting Saudi Arabia in the UAE in, in the blockade of Qatar. Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Egypt severed diplomatic ties with Qatar. We know now, in hindsight, that the UAE was pushing the U.S. into be opposed to Qatar even before Trump makes his first trip abroad to Saudi Arabia, months before the actual blockade takes place. When the Qatar blockade is actually announced, you get this tweet storm from the president, not uncommon for President Trump, but he seemingly out of nowhere dives into this internal fight in the Middle East against Qatar. And he really takes the side of the Saudis and the Emiratis. I think uh, somebody had to whisper in Trump's ear at some point, uh, oh, hey, by the way, buddy, uh, the, the largest U.S. airbase in the Middle East is actually in Qatar. And the UAE allegedly also had wishes they wanted fulfilled regarding individuals within the administration, Ben says. There's some very real questions about how much influence the UAE had over the decision by the Trump administration to replace Rex Tillerson. Elliot Broidy has UAE ties. Broidy reportedly lobbied President Donald Trump in October to fire Secretary of State Rex Tillerson because he opposed the blockade. We know that the UAE was not very happy with Rex Tillerson. He really wasn't taking a hard enough stance on Qatar, as far as they were concerned. He wasn't taking a hard enough stance on Iran. And speaking of Iran... Trump really caved to what the UAE wanted him to do. He pulls out of the Iran deal very quickly. I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. That was 2018. A year later, in 2019... The UAE wanted the Muslim Brotherhood to be added to the terrorism list. President Trump said he's working on designating the Muslim Brotherhood as a foreign terrorist organization. So again, it's another example of the UAE just having a really incredible sway over U.S. foreign policy during the Trump administration. And then Ben says there were these other issues that were more about keeping Trump from taking action. U.S. continuing to support the Saudis and the Emiratis in in their war in Yemen. The Saudi-UAE-led coalition in Yemen says it's launched precision strikes on Houthi military positions in the capital, Sana'a. But these pictures of damaged homes tell another story. The horrific murder of Jamal Khashoggi is yet another example of the UAE's influence in the U.S. And and now you might be saying, well, Jamal Khashoggi was murdered by the Saudis and it was in Turkey. You know, it didn't have anything to do with the UAE. And, And while that might be partially true, UAE's influence operation was rather quickly activated to help their allies in Saudi Arabia sort of get through this issue. Then there was the Abraham Accords, right? Which... I think for many people, uh, came out of nowhere. It was quite surprising. At the lavish White House ceremony hosted by the U.S. President Donald Trump and First Lady Melania Trump, the foreign ministers of Bahrain and the UAE signed the Abraham Accord with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The UAE, uh, Israel and the U.S. agreed to this normalization of relations. But I think it's only surprising if you're not considering, uh, again, the UAE's role in influencing the Trump administration. Trump, of course, has been, he was a very strong supporter of Israel. 
And for the UAE, of course, it's a sort of coup that they have even going into the Biden administration where the UAE can say, you know, we've normalized relations with, a, you know, an ardent U.S. ally in Israel. We're clearly a credible player in the region. It's another one of those just really gigantic issues that the UAE's kind of back-channel influence was very instrumental in making happen. So you look across the board and literally whatever the UAE wanted Trump to do, by and large, he did it. And not everything on this list that we've just laid out is in the indictment. So how do we know these things? Right. Some of these things are in the indictment. Some of this is actually in other indictments, too. Broidy Nader and others, they also have indictments. They, for example, talked to special counsel Robert Mueller. Uh, we know from, from media leaks, we sort of had to piece together this kind of puzzle of everything that the UAE was doing. And when we piece that together, I think we see just how broad this influence operation really was. I think there might be some people listening who think this is egregious, but it happened under the Trump administration. And they will uh, conflate those two things. <laughs> egregious behavior, Trump administration, this can't happen again, this won't happen again. <laughs> right. Can it happen again? Oh, absolutely. Frankly, I would be surprised if it's not happening r right now as we're having this conversation. And I don't mean to be a pessimist, you know, fear monger or anything like that, conspiracy theorist, but... What we know historically is that we learn about these influence operations years after the fact, and they're going on, frankly, most of the time. And even in the case of Tom Barrick, who, you know, he's a billionaire and sought to make more from both the Saudis and the Emiratis, he was frankly a pawn in this. The problem with the U.S. process is that the U.S. keeps holding the pawns accountable, but they are not holding the masterminds of these foreign influence operations accountable. People like Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed. They're not holding accountable people like the UAE ambassador to the U.S., Yusuf Otaiba. Can the U.S. hold some of these people accountable? Because they're at a pretty high level. How would that happen? What would that look like? Malika, that's a great question. And my dad always said, the key to life is low expectations. So <laughs> I'm going to keep my expectations here very low. All I would ask for is even just a harsh rebuke, even just a comment from President Biden, our you know, high-ranking government official, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, at the very least, to say to the United Arab Emirates, don't do this. We won't tolerate the, these influence operations. Presidents don't hesitate to call out Russia. And in fact, President Biden just did so. He let folks know that Russia is already meddling in the 2022 elections. Look what Russia is doing already about the 2022 elections and misinformation. It's a pure violation of our sovereignty. And he sent a strong message to Russia that's not okay. Yet we get this Tom Barrick indictment and we got crickets from the White House. We got crickets from across the Biden administration. There are more consequences that they could perhaps bring up, canceling a $23 billion arms sale to the UAE, or at the very least putting that arms sale on hold. But the U.S. right now is not even willing to say, please stop messing with us. And, and I think that is just very problematic. Why do you think the Department of Justice indicted Barrick? I think it begets another question. What took so long? 
I'm very happy to see this indictment, but frankly, we knew most of what was in this indictment years ago. The New York Times had a big expose on this a couple years ago. Other media outlets had covered this relationship between Tom Barrick and Yusuf Otaiba and other officials in the UAE government. Barrick really comes into play because he has connections in Saudi Arabia, he has connections in the UAE. And I, I remember at the time reading all these media reports and saying to myself, gosh, this certainly looks like somebody who should be registered under the U.S.'s Foreign Agents Registration Act. FARA, or the Foreign Agents Registration Act, is a U.S. law that requires people who represent the interests of foreign powers in a political capacity disclose that relationship. I quickly did a search, and he was not. And, and to this day, Tom Behrick has not registered under the Foreign Agents Registration Act for any of this work. Why did it take so long? And to answer my own question there, it was a different administration. Under the Trump administration, it was going to be very hard to prosecute somebody like Tom Barrick, a decades-old friend uh, of Donald Trump. And I think to the Biden administration's credit, the, the fact that they were able to do this indictment, get it out within six months of taking office, I think that was a very positive step. Do you believe the UAE didn't want Barrick to register as a foreign agent? I think it's very clear the UAE did not want Tom Barrick to register under FARA. And the indictment basically alludes to the fact that the UAE did not want Tom Barrick to register. The reasons for that are, are, are manyfold, but it's mostly because they didn't want folks to know that they had this kind of access and influence. It gives them more sort of leeway to exert their influence when the American public doesn't know that the guy sitting right next to the president is actually an agent working on behalf of the UAE. Had we known, I think then when Trump makes the unconventional decision to go to Saudi Arabia on his first trip abroad, I think we could point to Tom Barrick then and say, okay, I get it. And then it would have helped to explain a lot of the president's actions pretty much across the board if we came to his Middle East policy. So, of course, we've been talking about influence on the United States, but this is influence on foreign policy, which then affects Yemenis, Iranians, Palestinians. Why should this matter to the rest of the world? Oh, if I'm the rest of the world, I, I think I'm furious by this. Because what this tells the rest of the world is that U.S. foreign policy was not even being driven necessarily by U.S. interest or, or U.S. national security interest, or let alone what's best for the world. U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East was being heavily influenced by one authoritarian regime in the Middle East the United Arab Emirates, and I think to a lesser extent by the government of Saudi Arabia as well. And so if you're sitting in Yemen and you're living in this civil war where you've had to survive the terrible airstrikes that have killed civilians in Yemen, launched by the Saudis, in many cases using U.S. weapons, and it's not just airstrikes. The UAE was running torture camps in Yemen, and their lobbyists here spend a lot of time trying to get folks to not care about those things. I think, too, if you're in Iran and, and you're hoping for peace, I think you've got to be upset about this, too, because, of course, the, the U.S. gets out of the Iran deal on, uh, under President Trump. And I will say, too, Malika, that I think you should be especially upset about this if you're a U.S. citizen, because 
This is a foreign influence operation that's happening on U.S. soil that's affecting the very highest levels of the U.S. government, the president himself. And it's being done covertly, illegally, and the perpetrators of it are not going to be punished. You should be upset, America, because you have effectively been lied to for years. Final question. Is less of this kind of influence something the world should want? And is there hope of that? That is a really great question. And from the world's perspective, we really need to do a lot more in the U.S. and abroad in stopping these illicit, covert, secret influence. And I think this pertains to the U.S. too. The U.S., of course, has a track record of meddling in elections, democracy, and the political processes abroad. What we need across the board is greater transparency about what's going on when it comes to this stuff. We need better legislation here in the U.S. We need better legislation across the world. And frankly, we need better enforcement of the laws that we already have on the books. But maybe this is the pessimist or the realist in me coming back out again. I don't think we're ever going to fully stop this because I think that the stakes are just too high. If you're a country like the UAE, Saudi Arabia, you're spending 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars in some years. These countries are spending on their legal influence operations. But in return, they're getting billions of dollars in arms sales, trade deals military cooperation with the U.S., the the return on investment for them is just far too high. I don't think there's any possibility that we're going to fully eliminate foreign influence operations in the U.S. or abroad, and only time will tell if that's right or not. Perhaps you'll have to have me on in another two years to prove me right or wrong. (laughs) I think it sounds like uh, a real realist talking. (laughs) I learned a lot. I'm a little scared, but I'm happy I know. Thank you. (laughs) And we will have to have you back. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a pleasure, Malika. Thank you so much. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Dina Kispe, Priyanka Tove, Nagin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Our story editor is Tom Fenton. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer and Stacey Samuel is executive producer of The Take. If you want to check out Ben Freeman's book on foreign influence in the United States, it's called The Foreign Policy Auction. We'll link to it on our social media accounts. The show is on Instagram and Twitter at AJTheTake, and I'm at MMBalau. Let's keep the conversation going. We'll be back.